Support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Additional support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who has worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Acidity is one of the basic building blocks of flavor, and perhaps the most common variety of acid in our kitchen is acetic acid, vinegar. Today, we'll be using vinegar to make pickles, sauces, and drinks. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. To be annoyingly pedantic, technically vinegar is only made out of wine, since the English word vinegar derives from the French vinaigre, or sour wine. But since that kind of semantic pedantry is both obnoxious and pointless, vinegar in English covers the entire range of liquids that result from fermenting sugar and starch into alcohol, and then feeding that alcohol to bacteria that oxidize it and excrete acetic acid. Anything in the world that is used by humans to make alcohol is also used to make vinegar. There's date vinegar, coconut vinegar, sorghum vinegar, molasses vinegar, pineapple vinegar, and citrus vinegar to go along with the common vinegars, wine, cider, rice, and the generic distilled vinegar made from corn or other grains. Vinegar is only one of the acids in our culinary arsenal, but it's by far the most portable, storable, and easiest to produce. Citric acid's great as long as you can get citrus fruit. Lactic acid might be my favorite, responsible for the creamy funk of cheese, many breads, and fermented vegetables, but it takes a long time and some pretty specific conditions to get it going. Vinegar, though, doesn't take anything but a container of alcoholic liquid, which has been continually produced by humans since we first figured out how to do it. The actual challenge has been stopping vinegar production, since as soon as oxygen comes in contact with alcohol, it's just a matter of time before any acetobacter present in the liquid starts doing its thing. Anyone who's ever made beer or wine at home has had to battle these bacteria at every stage of the process. They're the reason for airlocks on small fermenters and high carbon dioxide trapping sides on larger ones. They're why wine aging in barrels is continually monitored and the barrels kept topped up. They're the reason wine is stored in corked bottles with very narrow necks to minimize oxygen content. They're one of the reasons beer is hopped. It's not just a flavor thing. Hops have antibacterial properties that drastically slow acetobacter activity, as you soon realize if you've ever tried to make malt vinegar out of a finished beer. The battle against unintentional vinegar was finally won by Louis Pasteur. His investigations into how precisely beer and wine spoiled led him to discover the various lactic and acetic acid-producing bacteria and in turn learn to both destroy and control them. Pasteur is definitely on the short list of most influential people of the modern era for his investigations into food safety, food production, microbiology, and vaccination, and much of that work derives directly from his effort to keep alcohol from turning into acid. At least when we don't want it to. I have a lot of rhubarb. It's a good problem to have having a lot of rhubarb. 
does mean that you have to solve this problem. And in addition to, of course, every now and then knocking out a rhubarb cobbler or a rhubarb galette or a rhubarb tart or any of the other fun things you can knock together by grabbing a little bit of rhubarb out of the garden at any particular time. There's two main ways that I like to preserve my rhubarb for a longer period of time. One way is jam. That's usually the second thing I do. I'll make jam in another few weeks. My early rhubarb preferences lean towards shrub. And shrub is a very simple thing. It's sweetened rhubarb in this case, or whatever other fruit or vegetable or herb or pretty much anything else you are using as your flavor base. Sweetened and then vinegar is poured over it and it's left to sit for a while. Typically at least a couple of weeks. And after you make this shrub, you can then use it as a flavor base for things like sodas. You just use carbonated water, you'll get lovely soda. Or you can use it as a base for cocktails, which is <laughs> typically what I use. But first we gotta harvest some rhubarb. All right, so I got a nice large colander, very large colander, filled with rhubarb. Just gonna take it over, hose it off. Okay, now I'm gonna go cut this stuff up and begin this process, which is extremely simple. Clean up my rhubarb and start cutting it up. I don't want to put this in a food processor because I don't want to make this vinegar any more cloudy, uh, which could pretty easily happen if I pulverized it. So this does take a little bit of time. You just got to chop all the chop all the rhubarb up into you know it doesn't have to be paper thin or anything, but you want to get it fairly fine. I want it to taste very fresh, very light. I want to keep the really delicate aromatics in the liquid. Like they're practically, they're pretty much the point to me. We got two different kinds of acid going on here. We've got the acetic acid from our vinegar, and we've got a little, little taste of oxalic acid from the rhubarb. So we've got multiple and complex acids happening, which is a good thing. Different facets of similar flavors. Is it the key to cooking? I don't know if it's the key, but it's pretty important. And that's what we got going on here. I've seen two different ways of doing it. I happen to do one way and it might be that there's probably not that much of a difference, but I think like all of us, because I do it this way, I've persuaded myself and I've come up with reasons why it's probably better. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you why my way is indisputably the best and all the other ways are not as good. And you can pretty much immediately discount it because I haven't actually made these both ways. I started doing it this way. I like the result. I've never seen a reason to try it the other way. So there's two methods. There's the way that I that I do this, which is to add the sugar to the rhubarb at the beginning uh, and leave it for, typically I will leave it for a day. Uh, sometimes I forget about it and it takes two days. With the goal of doing two things. One is to draw out the rhubarb juices. You know, the, the juices will come out because sugar is hygroscopic. So it'll suck the juices out of the rhubarb and make a sugar syrup with the rhubarb. And then my second theory about this is that by leaving it out in room temperature for a day or two, we'll get uh, a very, very light fermentation. And since acetic or since vinegar is fermented alcohol, and since the vinegar that I'm using, which we'll get to in a minute, is an unfiltered, unpasteurized vinegar that has live vinegar cultures in it. In theory, we might actually bulk up the acidity a little bit by my vinegar turning some of that very slight amount of alcohol in the sugar syrup into a little bit more acetic acid. Now it might be complete nonsense because the sugar syrup might in fact be so concentrated that, that the yeast required to convert the sugar into alcohol can't survive in it, which is very possible. And which is why I say that it might not be nearly as impressive as I think it is. The other way of doing it is to simply steep the rhubarb or whatever you're using to make your shrub in the vinegar for a couple of weeks and then sweeten it to taste at the end with sugar. My one sort of theory about 
why it might be better to do it with the sugar first is that using the sugar first, you definitely draw out a significant amount of the liquid inside the rhubarb, which in theory, in my mind, means that you're potentially getting a much more intensely rhubarby flavor at the end. However, again, as I say, I have not tested this theory. And like many, there are many culinary theories out there that people have that sound very plausible and turn out to be complete nonsense. So I will certainly admit that this could be one of them. However, the result is delicious. So I'm gonna keep doing it unless somebody gives me a rhubarb shrub or any other shrub that was steeped in the vinegar first and then sweetened to taste later. But for today, as I've done for the last few years, we're just going to add the sugar and then add the vinegar later. Now the vinegar that I'm using is from my private stock. Many years ago, I used to run a restaurant and we did wines by the glass. And the thing about wines by the glass is if you're a properly run restaurant, you've got to taste them pretty much every day to make sure that they haven't started to oxidize and go bad. You don't want to serve somebody a nasty oxidized glass of wine. So we wound up throwing, throwing a lot of wine away. I mean, we would have wound up throwing a lot of wine away, except what I did is I got a carboy and I filled the carboy every time we had a bottle of wine that had been open for a day too long, I poured in the carboy. And the first one I did, I also poured in a little bit of unfiltered, unpasteurized apple cider vinegar that had some mother. Vinegar mother is of course the bacterial mat composed of the bacteria that drink the alcohol and excrete acetic acid. Not all strains of bacteria form a mother, so just because you don't see a mother doesn't necessarily mean that there are no bacteria present. But typically in the apple cider vinegars at the store, that contain live cultures, there's almost always a mother of some kind. They do a very useful thing, which is convert the alcohol into acetic acid and make vinegar for us. Over the period of many, many, many months, we added consistently wine to this mega carboy of slowly acidulating old wine. And now, many years later, I let it sit for pretty much a year before I even started doing anything with it. And then we were using it on salad, on salad dressings, things like that, because it is really, it's tough to do at home because how many people really have leftover wine? I mean, I, we, <laughs> I certainly don't. But if you do find yourself regularly having leftover wine, making wine vinegar is a very useful thing to do. And now, this is many years later, the vinegar that I have made from this wine. I still have some of it around. I still have a fair amount of it around, actually. It just sits in my shop outside. It gets cold in the winter and warm in the summer. And it has, over time, turned into a lightly acidic. It's not, it's not overwhelmingly acidic. Um, and typically, wine vinegars won't be heavily acid. They're a little, they're milder. They're a little more like... Uh, a little closer to like a uh, rice vinegar than something very sharp, like a commercial, like a distilled vinegar or something that does have a lot of acidity. And they're very soft. It's a very, very soft and because uh, a lot of the tannins have dropped out. I didn't, it, this this particular vinegar is both red and white wines. We didn't we didn't discriminate. So it is, it's both kinds. It's, it's sort of pale red. It's cloudy because it's unpasteurized. So it still has plenty of uh, bacterial, gunk inside of it, which I know sounds gross, but is actually delicious and contributes to the body of it. But the, the characteristic when you taste it is just how soft it is. It's got this velvety texture almost like it, it there's no harshness to it at all. Um, I always had a love-hate relationship with vinegar a little bit. When I was younger, I sort of associated it mostly with um, pickles and I never really liked pickles that much when I was a kid because I don't like that super, super sharp, sharp acetic acid tang. And even nowadays, I vastly prefer fermented pickles where the dominant acid is lactic acid to acetic acid quick pickles. 
unless, typically, unless the acetic acid pickle also contains a fair amount of sugar to kind of tamp down that, uh, that super harsh, like, teeth scraping edge that, that especially a lot of commercial pickles can have because they use just distilled white vinegar, um, which is nothing but acetic acid and really doesn't have any other flavorings or any particularly interesting textural characteristics to it. It's just acid and that's it. And I just, I never was interested in it when I was a kid. And so I always had this kind of antipathy to vinegar and I never really learned to deal with it until I got older and really started learning about making vinaigrettes and how to make them good because, you know, the other, when I was a kid, I much preferred blue cheese to anything with vinaigrette and preferably completely drenched in blue cheese, which is now, it's the wrong way to make a salad, even if I liked it when I was nine. That is a full, heaping full restaurant third pan. So now we just have to weigh this rhubarb and I gotta decide how much sugar I want. Cause I don't like too much. I don't want it to be crazy, crazy sweet. 2,600 grams of rhubarb, pushing six pounds. And I went ahead and I added three pounds of sugar so we're gonna go half by weight. And I'm just stirring it all together in a big bowl. Get it nice and evenly distributed. It's a nice coating. And now, I'm just gonna start piling it back into my original three pan. And I'm gonna let this sit overnight. And tomorrow, I am going to have a very nice amount of rhubarb syrup. And then I'm gonna take that, and I'm gonna pack that into quart mason jars, you know? And I'm gonna pack each one about half full, and I'm gonna cover the whole deal with vinegar. With specifically my red wine vinegar. You can use any kind of vinegar, but for this, it's nice if you if you do start with something that's, that's nice and flavorful. And then I'm gonna let it sit. And I'm gonna let it sit for about two weeks. And once they're done with that, I'm gonna strain all the solids out in as fine a mesh bag as you can, because you wanna get as much of the solids out as you can. You can, you can use like a mesh, a mesh uh, strainer, a steel mesh strainer or a colander or something just to get the, the main bits of the rhubarb out, but do make sure that you strain it through either some cheesecloth or if you have a very fine mesh bag, use that. They might be thinking, you know, wow, three pounds, that's a lot of sugar. But remember, the way that you can make something not cloyingly sweet when you have a lot of sugar is to have a very high acid. This is essentially going to wind up being the early version of soda. This is what they drank in the days before they had commercial soda. And this is what the original commercial sodas we're attempting to emulate. The reason you can put so much sugar into a soda, I mean, if you look at, you know, it's like, what is it? In a can of Coke, there's like 50 grams of sugar or something like that, which is just nuts. But the reason that you can do that, and even though, I mean, it is like now, particularly that I don't drink soda that much anymore, and now when I do drink it, I'm like, man, that is sweet. But the reason, if you just put 52 grams of sugar in some water and dissolved it, like actually, <laughs> like sweet tea kind of is, like I can't even drink that stuff anymore, even with a lot of lemon, because it's just like teeth shattering. In soda, there's a huge amount of acid, and typically in soda, it'll be a combination of citric acid and carbonic acid, because carbonated water is naturally acidic as well. The acidity counteracts the sweetness, so you can get a lot more sugar, which can then support a lot more of the sort of bitter flavors uh, that are predominant, especially in like cola sodas. You know, if you were, just gonna drink like a <laughs> uh, uh, some hot tea that was made out of the ingredients of like a Coca-Cola, it would be disgusting, you know, you wouldn't be able to do it. But if you add the sweetness, then that rounds out the bitter edges of the, the flavors and it allows sort of the more aromatics to come up. But now by the time you get it sweet enough to where the bitterness is gone, or not gone, but tempered so that it's not overwhelming, now all of a sudden it's too sweet. So now you need the, the acidity from, uh, again, in Cola's case, um, citric acid. But in a shrub's case, you're getting, you're getting the same acidity from 
acetic acid from vinegar. It's really magnificent on like a hot day. I mean, some people will just drink them straight over ice, but personally what I like to do with them is to give a little shot of this uh, shrub syrup because basically you're making a flavored soda syrup here with the caveat that you can make it as sweet or as tangy or sour as you want to by controlling the amount of vinegar. So what I'm gonna do originally, because I wanna get a lot of that rhubarb flavor, is I'm gonna add enough vinegar to cover and it'll be a little bit more, you know, like it's gonna be a significant amount of vinegar, but then at the end of the two weeks, once I've got the basic rhubarb flavor, then I'm gonna taste it and that's when I'm gonna decide, do I want this to be uh, more acidic? Do I want it to be sweeter? What's the balance that I'm looking for? And so at the end, after I've got this sort of intense rhubarb uh, vinegar, you know, made with this base of sugar and, and wine vinegar, at the end, I'm gonna taste that and I'm gonna go, okay, this needs a little more acidity or this needs a little more sugar. And then I can, I can balance it to be exactly what I want it to be. With again, the caveat that I actually want this to be a little more intense. This isn't meant to be used straight. If I wanted to make a rhubarb vinegar, I wouldn't even bother with the sugar. I would just steep the rhubarb in vinegar for two weeks and that I would use in vinaigrettes, things like that. You can do that with any fruit. It's really, it's, it's quite a delicious way to make uh, vinaigrette. But for this, this is not, the, the, the eventual product is not designed to be the end product. It's gonna get diluted in other things. So if it's a little out of whack, as long as I think that the, the sweetness and the tartness are in balance, it's okay. Even if it's like you drink it and you're like, whoa, that's too much, that's okay because we're gonna dilute it typically with uh, club soda is, or seltzer water are the main things that you would use. And then from there, you can use this shrub in, uh, in cocktails. It goes really well with gin, uh, but you can also use them with rum or vodka. I think they'd be a little weird with whiskey, although you could probably make something interesting with whiskey. Or you can add a little bit to uh, some sparkling wine to get like a rhubarb, <laughs> almost like a rhubarb mimosa um, out of this whole deal. And as I'm watching it, I can see like the, the sugar's already drawing out the water of the rhubarb. It's already starting to convert to syrup. By this time tomorrow, there will be a heavy syrup here. And then I will mix in the vinegar. It's a long process, but all the hard work's done right now. I'm just gonna let it sit overnight. And tomorrow, uh, add the vinegar and let that sit for two weeks. I mean, on a hot day, after you've been like weed whacking and mowing lawn and pulling weeds all day, it's really nice to sit down with a glass of this and uh, some soda water. It's awesome. It's kind of like the original pink lemonade. It's got the same, the same sort of feeling. And you can make this, it doesn't have to be rhubarb. Later in the summer, make it with raspberry or blueberry, or you know, you can use pretty much any fruit that's at your disposal, as long as you got a lot of it, because it does take quite a bit. So this is definitely the sort of thing to make with something you've got a bounty of. I highly recommend it because it's really versatile stuff. It's delicious and uh, it's really simple to make. Shrub, love it. Summer is grilling time and grilling time means you're occasionally gonna need to dip your toes into the world of barbecue sauce. And there are, of course, many different styles and kinds of barbecue sauce. I mean, if it's me personally, and I'm making something barbecue-like, because I don't have a barbecue pit, I have a kettle grill. So anything that I do is gonna be an approximation. So typically what I wind up doing is making pulled pork. And pulled pork happens to be my favorite, uh, except actually for ribs and maybe brisket. No, it's ribs. Ribs are good Memphis style dry rub ribs. Probably my favorite. Pulled pork is a very close second and uh, I'm a big fan of brisket too. But really any, any sort of barbecue is delicious. I mean, we all know this. And with pulled pork, I do like the more Carolina style, lots of vinegar and lots of mustard. Some places it's more mustard, some places it's more vinegar, but I have Catholic tastes in uh, barbecue sauce. It's all pretty good. And so today we're gonna be making something that is a little closer to uh, the kind of classic barbecue sauce that when we think of barbecue sauce, it's the first thing you think of, which is pretty thick, tangy, a little sweet, and then you're gonna brush it on and get it a little bit smoky. These are usually ketchup based. One of the few useful uses for ketchup, the other of course being French fries 
And the rest of ketchup being basically pointless. I think we all know this. It's just science. We're gonna make a, a, a nice tangy, a little bit sweet barbecue sauce, but we're going to make it using something borrowed from French Nouvelle Cuisine. And it's actually, it goes perfectly well in barbecue sauce. It is called gastrique. It is basically a sugar and vinegar sauce. A really classic combination. Everybody all across the world has some version of a, a sour and sweet sauce. And the gastrique it has a little bit of a unique twist on it because for its sugar component, it actually uses caramel, which is really interesting because caramel loses, it trades a little bit of the sweetness for a little bitter edge. So it gives it an even slightly more complex flavor. And, uh, and it's kind of an interesting one in here because a lot of barbecue sauces, you know, they tend to be specialties in the South. And in the South, for a long time, the primary sweetener was molasses. And molasses, much like caramel, also has kind of a bitter, earthy undertone to it. So you can either just use molasses, in which case, you know, <laughs> your process is much simplified, or what we're gonna do today, which is to make a gastrique. The advantage of the gastrique is that you get the caramel, and then you also get to pick your vinegar. I'm gonna use uh, red wine vinegar today, but you can use any kind of vinegar, um, and it'll give it just a slightly different character. And I'm using my, my homemade red wine vinegar which is very delicious and very lovely. And in fact, I promised to describe the flavor of it to you when I was making my shrub and I forgot to. So I'm just gonna take a little spoonful of this stuff. It's very pale, it's slightly cloudy. It's got a really, it's, it's very fruity smelling. It is definitely acidic, it is definitely tangy, but what it is definitely not at all is harsh. It sort of has this intense sort of flash of, of super bright, super hot acidity right at the back of your throat as you swallow, and then it immediately goes away, and it's just, it, it goes everywhere. It stimulates your whole mouth. It's so good. I just love this stuff. It's fantastic on salads. To make a gastrique, you use equal parts sugar and vinegar. I'm making a caramel in a little stainless saucepan, just melting my sugar over kind of a medium heat. And in this case, it doesn't need to be a super dark. It can be fairly light because I do want to retain, you know, the darker a caramel gets, the, the, the more bitter and the more complex its flavor. But in this case, I still want it to be fairly sweet. I'm not going to go super dark on it because I want it to retain a lot of its sweet character. And a gastrique, the most famous uh, use of one of these is a dish you may have heard of, uh, duck a l'orange, orange duck with bitter Seville oranges. And gastriques get used a lot in fruit sauces, especially with duck and especially with game. So various cherry sauces and orange sauces, lemon sauces, um, things like that. We'll often get a bit of gastrique. In a sauce context, you typically do not use that much. This stuff is really intense. So that, that was sort of the traditional uh, use of a gastrique. It was a component of another sauce. Um, sometimes they would get added to brown sauces just to give it a little bit of a sweet tang to it. We're just about there. I've got a nice amber gold liquid here. We're not really trying to reduce the vinegar. It will reduce a little bit just because we're adding it to incredibly hot caramel, which is about to happen. When you add your liquid, it uh, immediately gets hard and it immediately forms a, it turns into caramel candy is what it does. And it, uh, and then you have to keep your vinegar warm so you can dissolve your, your caramel. So you do wind up reducing a little bit, but my goal is not really to reduce the vinegar. My goal is mostly to dissolve the sugar into the vinegar. This is gonna be one of those sauces that I'm just gonna kind of make up as I go along, which is basically the way that I typically make barbecue sauce. I mostly just wing it, you know, based on what I'm feeling that particular day. And that is, that's the way I cook a lot. We're just making a happy little barbecue sauce. Not really a right or a wrong way at the end. I just want our own personal preferred mix of sweetness and acidity and salt. And we always want to remember when we're making a sauce like this, we always want to think about what we're going to do with it. You know, if we're making a barbecue sauce, 
particularly one that is actually intended for grilled food. You know, a lot of barbecue sauces will have things like liquid smoke in them, which is great. You know, if you just want to <laughs> make like a barbecue chicken sandwich, you just kind of cook a chicken breast and you just want a little bit of sort of vaguely barbecue-y outdoor flavor, which a lot of the store-bought barbecue sauces are like that. You know, they'll have liquid smoke and stuff in them, but if you're going to actually use this for grilled food, there's no point in putting liquid smoke in it. There's no point in using that because it's going to be in direct contact either on the grill as a mop sauce or basted or added right at the end, or if nothing else, it's going to be right there sitting on top of food that's actually sat on the grill. So it's going to be smoky. But if I was doing this in the winter and I wasn't going to be grilling, I might put a drop of liquid smoke in just to give it that feel. But this isn't that kind of a barbecue sauce. This is a summer sauce. The first thing that I'm going to add, before I add the ketchup, some mustard. Because mustard is really, even though ketchup gets a lot of the barbecue sauce attention, mustard to me is sort of the, it's all got to have that. You know, barbecues, no matter what kind you're making, it's almost always going to have pretty significant fat content. Got to have a little mustard if you're going to have some fatty meat. Mustard and fatty meats are best friends. So that's probably a tablespoon of mustard. I'm probably going to add a little bit more, but I'm just going to start with a little bit. I'm not going to taste this yet either. I'm not going to start tasting it until I get a little further along in the process. Let's give it a little ketchup. That is probably about a quarter cup of ketchup. And ketchup is another one of those curious condiments. It's got all sorts of things going on. It's got, obviously, a good deal of acidity. From the tomatoes and it's got a good deal of sweetness somewhat from the tomatoes and also heavily from the sugar that is always added to ketchup and tomatoes themselves also contain quite a bit of umami glutamates so we've got a fair amount of that going on and those are kind of the three main components of a good barbecue sauce a good barbecue sauce usually you know of this style the sort of ketchup based barbecue sauce is not going to be it's not going to be very salty, you know, and typically the meat itself will be fairly heavily salted, at least if it's good barbecue. There'll be a pretty considerable quantity of salt on it. And so you don't need a lot of salt in the sauce because the sauce's job is to bring other kinds of complexity. The meat itself is going to carry a whole lot of umami, a whole lot of savory power. It's going to have smoke and it's typically going to have salt. And then sometimes there'll be a rub involved that'll carry some other flavors, some herbaceous kind of flavors, or, you know, spices, sometimes heat. Typically, I don't want to put too many distinct spices in my barbecue sauce, personally, just because, again, I like them to be usable in a variety of situations, which if you make your, if you load up your sauce with too many herbs and spices, then it starts to get really specific tasting. You can't necessarily use the same variation of a sauce on multiple different barbecues. A little bit of mustard and a little bit of ketchup and my gastric. And now let's see what we got. Because this is the base of the whole thing. And so everything that happens now is going to be built on top of this. And when I, as I spoon this, I get a very thick, it's a little syrupy, it smells, the, the vinegar is really, really coming through right now. So let's see what we got here. Because now I gotta decide what I wanna build this into. Ah, woo! Okay, so that is super, super unbalanced right now. Predominantly acidic, and it's way too sweet. So it's like, it's just like a blast of super super acid and then immediately like almost cloying sweetness it's way 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 out of balance there is a good strong mustard flavor though that i like i'm actually going to add a little more mustard to it i like that you sort of taste it expecting it to be like mustard or be very ketchupy and very sweet but then you get this really solid and really distinct hit of mustard so i like that i'm a big fan of that so because it makes me happy I'm going to keep rolling with it. I'm going to add a bunch more mustard. And this is probably my barbecue likes coming through because, like I said at the top, I do like uh, the Carolina-style super mustardy barbecue sauce, particularly on my pulled pork, is my favorite. All right. 
starting to bubble now. It's starting to get hot, and I don't want to reduce it too much right now. And I'm definitely going to want a little more ketchup, because the ketchup will help thin it out a little more, too. What are my other choices of things here that I have? Got some fish sauce. I've got some hoisin. Got some miso. I have a feeling that I'm going to be using one of these, but I'm not sure which one yet. And the reason that I'm going to be using one of these is to punch up that savory quality, which is so delicious. But let's see where we're at. Ooh, still intensely tangy, but it's definitely like kind of eased into a much more appealing. It's not so like overwhelmingly acidic as it originally was. Now it gives it, now it's a nice bright acidity that then dials back a little bit into uh, into sweetness. So we're, we're getting much closer, but I still think, I still think we're cloying here. I want to bulk this out a little, not too much. And I'm debating now, this is the question, how do I want to do this? So my choices here, one is straight water, um, but that would thin it out too much. I don't want it to be I like the texture right now. It's got a nice texture. It's like a, it drips off the spatula in a, in a nice even stream and it's nice and slow. It maintains a track if I drag my fingernail through the back of it, which is a, a really good characteristic for a sauce. But right now I'm all, I feel like I'm almost there as far as like the base of the flavor. And then I'll start thinking about the top notes. It's just right now it's a little too sweet tart. So I'm going to try adding like a teaspoon of miso. And what I'm hoping to get here is some savoriness. And I thought about doing this with, uh, with either fish sauce or with hoisin. The hoisin would give it the savoriness, but it would also add quite a bit of sweetness too. And I don't want to amp the sweetness up anymore. The fish sauce would give it a nice savoriness but it would and it would be salty but then i started thinking about it and i was like you know i want to have this be kind of a, a barbecue sauce that anybody can use even if you're a vegetarian and vegetarians don't get to eat fish sauce i went with door number three which was miso soy sauce would also be acceptable the nice thing about miso is that we're not going to thin out the sauce at all because it's thick it's a thick paste that definitely grounded it quite a bit like a shocking amount actually mmm so that's quite good. Now I'm still getting a little too much sourness. There's still too much vinegar in here from our initial gastric. So I think if I just increase the proportions of everything else just a little bit, if I just add a little more of all the other stuff, I think we're going to get to where we want to be here. So I'm going to give it another maybe three tablespoons of ketchup and another half a teaspoon of, of uh, miso and clean out this mustard container. And I bet by the time we get all this done, it'll, it'll be in proportion with the, with the original gastric. You know, if you're, if you're at the point in cooking where you know, where you know the basics and you're trying to move into being able to kind of envision what you want, and then trying to figure out how to get there. Something like this is really useful to be able to do that because it's really obvious when you're going along. Like it's, we're using such elemental flavors right now. None of them are like insanely complex on their own. I mean, obviously miso does have a lot of complexity to it, but the way that we're using it in here, we're, we're working with really basic flavors, you know? We're working with the sweetness and the bitterness of the caramel. We're working with the acidity of the vinegar. We're working with the acidity, the sweetness, and the savoriness of the tomato sauce. We're working with the heat and the pungency of the mustard, and we're working with the savoriness of the miso. So these are all really basic flavors. And as you start with this, I mean, when you first taste the, the gastrique on its own, you'll be like, oh my God, I immediately see this is way too intense, you, you know, to use on its own. So how do we de-intensify it while keeping its original quality. And you know what barbecue sauce is supposed to look like. You know what the texture is supposed to be like. You know the kind of flavor notes that you're hitting. So it's really easy to take these basic building blocks and build them up into something that is what you want and what is unique to you. And it's not about secret ingredients and it's not about fancy techniques. It's not about any of that. It's just about knowing how to 
how to balance these really elemental building blocks of flavor. And this is a great way to learn how to do it. None of these ingredients are particularly difficult, you know? You don't even have to use miso. You could use soy sauce, like I say. Although that, in that case, you would have to be a little bit careful and not add too much because it might thin it out. I just, I really like miso for sauce making. It's very useful stuff. All right, let's see where we're at here. Oh yeah, that is a big improvement. Big flavor. The, the, the tartness and the acidity of the vinegar has now sort of been brought down into focus a little bit. I feel like it's a little too ketchupy now. We've got a fair amount of ketchup in here, but I think that'll be kind of easy to, to fade into the background once I start adding some heat. It's a little bit right now, I would say it's a little, it's a little sticky, it's a little bit sweet tasting. There's enough, there's enough body from the miso. I'm gonna add a little bit more miso because I think I could use a little bit. Uh, but there's enough body from both the miso and the bitterness of the caramel and the mustard to sort of counteract the sweet. But the sweetness has definitely sort of popped a little, now it's a little too sweet. So now I'm starting to think about spices. I'm gonna use a little bit of the basic heat spice, which is cayenne. Doesn't have a ton of like characteristic fruity flavor. It just brings a little heat. And then I'm gonna add a little paprika because paprika, again, people always think it doesn't taste like anything, but it, it brings a really nice sort of earthy, but also slightly fruity pepper flavor without being overwhelming, you know, and it's not crazy hot either. Oh yeah, that, that changed the character of this quite a bit. Yeah, let's give it a shot now. Let's see what, let's see what the addition of a little bit of heat and piquancy brings. Mm. So that, just the addition of that little bit of cayenne and that little bit of paprika, which was, it was maybe, maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of cayenne and maybe a half a teaspoon of paprika, something like that. Now, all of a sudden, the thing that is, is, that is very prominent now is the mustard that really perked up the mustard. So it didn't get any hotter. It's not at all hot, but all of a sudden, the addition of a little bit of capsicum has made the pungency of the mustard come to the forefront. And that has really, really done a lot to sort of neutralize the, uh, the sweetness of the sauce. We're still a little bit sweet. We're not there yet, but we're a lot closer than we were. So I'm actually gonna add a little, a little bit of salt, just a pinch, you know, because the only salt characteristic that I really have in here right now is from the miso. And there's, there's not that much of it. There's a little bit of salt in the tomatoes too or in the ketchup too, obviously. But I want a little bit more salt. There's definitely, there's a dimension that wasn't there before. So let me taste this now, the addition of a little salt. Okay, okay. Kind of smoothed everything out. There's a lot going on. It's, it's very active in my mouth. The thing is, it doesn't feel super, super unified right now. Like it's not tied together, if that makes sense. It's a little bit unfocused. I think I'm gonna give it, a little shot of garlic powder because that's a real top note and that might harmonize with some of the other things going on so i'm just going to give it a shake of garlic powder a light dusting like freshly fallen snow except garlic powder because right now there's a lot going on at the bottom but there aren't a lot of overtones there's not a lot of top notes happening here so let me see if the garlic powder helps to sort of bring out the top end and then i might add a little black pepper or actually a little white pepper now I'll add a little black pepper. Let's see where we're at with the garlic powder. Better, better. I actually think it can take a little more garlic powder. I think that definitely opened up the top end a little bit. I'm gonna shake a little more in there. Oh, now when you smell it, you get a big head of garlic. Some black pepper. That'll give it some aromatics. Getting closer, getting closer. Mm, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Now, the thing I'm trying to decide now if I think it needs more to complete itself on its own, or if I think that it's good now and will become perfect when it's actually achieved its life's mission, which is to go on top of uh, grilled meat. <laughs> I think it needs just a pinch more salt. Doesn't need any more mustard. The mustard is, is there all over the backbone. Mm. It needs something right at the front. Because right now, the very first thing you get is kind of the combination of ketchup and mustard. Everything else comes after that. But it needs something right at the beginning to sort of pique your, uh, to sort of pique your, 
taste buds. I think what it needs is a little bit of hot sauce. I just added Louisiana hot sauce, which is fairly vinegary, not as vinegary as crystal. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, ooh. Mmm. Do I like that? I do like that. That is quite delicious. It's so delicious it makes me think it needs just a little bit more heat. So I'm gonna give it just a little bit more heat. Just a little bit more cayenne. That is that little bit of heat that'll just sort of perk it up right on the tip of your tongue. Oh yeah. The very last thing we're gonna do here, and I think this is gonna get me there, is just another little splash of straight vinegar. Not very much. Just a little bit to loosen the whole thing up a little. Mmm, yeah. Oh, that, that is gonna perk it up. That was not very much vinegar at all. Maybe a teaspoon or two. It just loosened it up and it's given it this really, really vibrant aroma. But now that last little touch of vinegar has really brought it all back together. Now I would say this is still a pretty sweet forward sauce, but there is enough else going on that it is not cloying at all. It doesn't have that like heaviness. It's very light. There's a density to it and there's an intensity to it that it's definitely gonna remind you of, you know, it is fully a tomato-based, ketchup-based barbecue sauce. And it has, it has a sweet character to it. There's a whole lot else going on in here. Um, it's very complex and sitting on top of some meat, especially if you brush it on towards the end so that it has time to sort of thicken up into a little bit of a glaze, I think this would be really delicious. Uh, what I will say 100% <laughs> is that it's better than bottled sauce. But it starts with a really basic, really simple, and very useful for many purposes other than barbecue sauce, sauce made of caramel and vinegar that's called a gastrique. And they are extremely useful, especially for things like game. So try, uh, try adding a little bit to one of your sauces if you get a moose or a caribou, because it will be delicious. <laughs> Well, we can't hardly do a show on vinegar and not at least make some kind of a pickle. Even though, like I kind of mentioned before, acetic acid pickles are not typically my favorite, at least in the cucumber form for sure. But I have developed over the years a real affection for some other types of quick pickles. I love pickled onions, but today I thought about doing pickled red onions, you know, they're kind of a classic, but I decided against it because today I'm gonna make a different kind of pickle, which is also delicious and which I've made a fair amount of, which is do chua, which is a Vietnamese pickle made of some proportion of daikon radish and carrot. And it is most common in the West, which is where I first encountered it, and probably if you've ever encountered it, probably the first place you did too. It is most common in the West, or most well-known in the West, I should say, as a component of a banh mi. But I am assured that it is quite popular with all sorts of things in Vietnam. And I, personally, whenever I have it around, find lots of things to do with it. Because it's quite, it's quite tasty, um, and it's a real simple, real fast to make pickle. That sound that you hear is I have just peeled a small daikon radish, and I'm running it on my mandolin, pretty much just about as fine as my mandolin goes. Basically like shoestring potato. I have a nice pungent, radishy aroma. Although daikons, daikons don't have near the pungency of. Uh, or the heat of our common, the really the common ones in the U.S. that so many of us grow. I just peeled a carrot now, and I've got my carrot on the mandolin. And if you don't want to use the mandolin, you can, or if you don't have a mandolin, which a lot of people don't, you can cut them with a knife to whatever fineness you want. Or there's also the little sort of julienne peeler styles, and those are okay, although I think they're a little, I think they cut a little too fine for for these, personally. But, you know, how thick you make these is kind of a personal uh, decision. I like them, I don't like them too thin. Some people I've seen actually run them on the grater. Um, I don't like them so much 
that fine because I kind of feel like I feel like they get too soft. I feel like they lose a lot of their texture. Um, so I like I like them about about like a shoestring potato. But some people also cut them thicker. So it's personal preference. It's whatever you want. This is not something that there's only one way of doing it. There are about a million different recipes, and they all are going to involve different proportions of sugar to vinegar, different amounts of water. Some people like things sweeter. Some people like things a little tangier. Actually, you know, one of my favorite things about having these around, is, especially in the summer, is that it makes making a coleslaw super easy. Because pretty much if you shred some cabbage, and throw it together with some of this stuff, sprinkle in a little bit of the brine, you've got a perfectly acceptable coleslaw base, you know, that you can then jazz up however you want to. But even, I mean, just some cabbage and, and this stuff thrown together is really, really delicious as coleslaw. You know, this stuff, it goes really well with a lot of summertime foods. Various kinds of grilled and fatty meats. It goes with fish. It's just, it's a really, really good condiment to have kicking around. All right, so that is one not too large daikon and one fairly medium-sized carrot. And I'm gonna have more daikon than carrot, but you can have more carrot than daikon. You can do it with all carrot. You can do it with all daikon. You can do it however you want. This is pretty forgiving. I'm gonna give it a, probably two solid teaspoons of salt. And I'm also going to give it a couple of teaspoons of sugar. And this, we're going to just knead and work it into the, the daikon a little bit. We want to break down some of the cell structure, and we want the daikon to start to give up some of its liquid, because that will help it retain crunch in the brine. One of the, one of the hallmarks of really good pickles is that they're still crunchy. A lot of that happens just by a little patience here at the beginning. So I'm just kneading it. I'm giving them gentle, gentle squeezes and you can feel already there's quite a bit of water coming out and they're just sitting in a bowl right now. So we wanna get as much of this water out because this water, so much of cooking is controlling water, is controlling the amount of liquid that you've got in something. And that's what we're doing here. So we wanna get rid of as much of this water as possible. We're gonna replace it with a more flavorful liquid, which I will now start to make. And there are, some people do this, some people boil their brine first, and some people do not. And I am typically a, a do not boil person when I'm making pickles. I always feel like boiling maybe softens things up a little too much. And it also can give things kind of a cooked flavor. Um, they don't boil the, the vegetable mixture in the actual, uh, you know, in the brine. They just will typically pour boiling water over the top of it. And for some recipes, I think uh, probably essential. But for this one, I don't really think it is. Grab a mason jar here. Fill it with a cup of rice wine vinegar, a little extra salt. I'm just gonna start adding sugar until I get this to a sweetness that I like. I can also add a little bit of water too, um, if I think it's too too acidic and too tangy, which I probably won't because I, I do like, uh, I like some tang in this. So I'm just stirring my salt in just to get it to start to dissolve. This is the biggest thing uh, in, in all the competing recipes out there is that some people just like it, like it sweeter, some people like it tangier. So there's one tablespoon of sugar to my cup of vinegar. And give it a quick dissolve. I'm gonna taste it. It's still pretty pungent. Not really getting any sweetness out of it at all. So I'm gonna add a second tablespoon. Hmm. Ooh, yeah. It tamped down some of the acidity and it brought out a little bit more of the sort of rice characteristic of the vinegar. Let's go with about a, a half a teaspoon more. It's a really nice flavor now. And, hmm, ooh, tart. I like it, I like it. In fact, I like it so much that I'm, I don't wanna add any more sugar. I'm afraid if I add more sugar, it'll start to tip over into sweetness. And I personally, I like things a little tangier. The nice thing about rice vinegar is it 
it, it is a little bit mellower. It has less of an edge than distilled vinegar, although a lot of these recipes do call for distilled vinegar. So you can certainly use that. It just, distilled vinegar, it just has an edge that I don't particularly like, but that's just me, you know? Some people, some people enjoy that. So I have exuded already probably, that's probably close to a quarter cup of liquid uh, out of these daikon radishes. I'm gonna grab another jar. I'm probably gonna fill a single pint jar with this. It's a great recipe because it'll just scale up, you know, however much you want, you can use. Let me taste one of these, make sure I don't have too much salt or anything. Mm. No, that's beautiful. Nice mild sweetness from the daikon. You could certainly rinse it at this point, and uh, there's plenty of recipes that call for that. Again, a lot of this is personal taste, and I, I do definitely have something of a salt tooth. This is really nice and salty for me. Not overly so, and it'll combine really nicely with the vinegar. Got my pile of daikon and carrot in a colander, and I'm just gently squeezing it more to get out as much of that excess water as we can. But it usually doesn't take any more than 10 or 15 minutes in contact with the salt and the, the sugar to really draw out the amount of water that you want to draw out. So that's that. I'm just gonna pack it into my little pint jar here. Just about up to the top. It is an, almost an exact amount. And now all I gotta do is pour in my brine. Now, these pickles, they're not really designed for long storage outside of refrigeration. You know, you can certainly keep them for a little bit, but this is not the kind of pickle that keep you through the winter kind of pickle. You know, this pickle is pretty much keep making it, keep eating it, eat a lot of it, don't make a ton of it all at once. This pickle is kind of designed to just sort of hang out in your fridge and you munch on it constantly and you're constantly using it and you don't keep it around for more than a month or so. It can start to get a little funky smelling from the daikon, but you don't have to worry about that. Just if it smells funky, you can kind of let it sit for a few minutes and it'll, it'll evaporate any unpleasant odors, but it needs to sit now, even though it's a quick pickle and you know, technically I probably could eat, <laughs> start eating it right now. Uh, it, it, it is going to be better if I let it sit for two or three days. I have a very quickly, quick and easily made condiment that I can leave in my fridge anytime I need something bright and crunchy on top of some salmon, on top of pretty much anything. Smoked salmon, oh man, this is, this is good stuff with smoked salmon. You know, it really cuts through the, the fattiness and the smoke. Delicious stuff. Daikon carrot pickle. One of the many useful products of our old friend, acetic acid, AKA vinegar. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kator Ebane. This is the third episode of the first summer 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who's worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Additional support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website 
at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.